Aren't you thankful that we have a living hope? Tonight, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And Hebrews is one of several books in the New Testament that the author is unknown. We know the author of the Gospel accounts, as well as the book of Acts. We know that Luke wrote that. We know that many of the New Testament books were written by the Apostle Paul. We also know that Peter and John wrote several letters. And we know that the Apocalypse of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. However, Hebrews remains a disputed book regarding its authorship. Some scholars believe that it was written by Paul. Others believe that it was written by a scribe of Paul. Other scholars believe that it was written by Luke, while others say Apollos or Barnabas. As the church father Origen stated, only God knows who wrote Hebrews. This is not the only way that the book of Hebrews differs from other New Testament writings. Many early church fathers believe that the book of Hebrews is thought to have been a sermon delivered by this anonymous preacher rather than a letter scribed by an author. According to Clement of Rome, the recipients of this sermon were thought to have been urban Jews um, who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. This is important to note because as we look at this letter, um, as this sermon, we need to understand the context by which the preacher was delivering the sermon, as well as the recipients who were listening to it. To a Christian in 2018, um, it might be weird to see a book in the Bible and think this was a sermon delivered almost 2,000 years ago. Well, as we've looked at the book of Acts um, with Pastor Philip the last couple of years, we see Paul going into um, these various um, cities in the Greco-Roman world, and what does he do? He goes in and he's proclaiming uh, the gospel in these cities, in these forums, um, in the temple. And this was a very common practice back in this age. Um, in these places, you would have seen great philosophers and orators proclaiming um, aloud the latest in rational and philosophical thought. So this wouldn't have been something um, uncommon to a first century uh, Jew. So this brings us to the location of this sermon. This too is unknown, however many church fathers believe that it was written, written to the Jewish Christians located in the city of Rome. Other people believe that it was directed towards Antioch or Jerusalem. So you might be wondering why we spent the first two or three minutes of tonight um, talking about background information. Why do we spend our time talking about background information? This is God's word, it's written to me. Well, yes, it is written to you. However, first, it was written to the people that it was intended for in the first century. So with that said, let's dive into this great text. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight, help us as we look into this book of Hebrews, into this great sermon written by this preacher, that we will see what it is that you have in store for us, God, but that we will also see um, the huge significance that it would have meant to these Jews who were listening to this sermon for the first time. Help us to see this meaning And help us to leave this place changed so that we can bring glory and honor to your name. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. No matter how many times the shadow is repeated, it always remains a shadow. It is never the substance itself. Right from the get-go of this passage, the preacher of Hebrews blatantly states how the law in Levitical system cannot ever perfect those who draw near to worship. Marcus Dodds goes as far as to say that there is no relation between the physical blood of animals and man's moral offense. The preacher hits on this point even further if we look in verse 3 when he states that in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. This helps to illustrate the point of the Levitical law to remind people of their sin and their desperate need to be cleansed. The Old Testament law, however, failed to secure this type of purification needed to be in constant fellowship with God, hence why Christ's sacrifice was needed. Oftentimes, we fail to see the seriousness of our sin. John Piper puts it like this, We are in a deadly dream world most of the time when it comes to how seriously in trouble we are with God because of our sin. He goes on later to talk about how we worry more about being stopped by a police officer for speeding than we do with God for the seriousness of our sin. Most followers of Christ, we know that sin is infinitely more serious, right? Right? (laughs) With a speeding ticket, the worst thing that happens is you get a fine. If you have a lot of speeding tickets, or maybe if you're going fast enough, 
You may go to prison. Sin, hell. We forget about that so often. So often, it is good to be reminded of our sin because unlike old covenant worshipers, our sin has been dealt with on the cross thanks to Jesus Christ's blood. Now make no mistake about it, our sin is still the number one problem we have with the Father. He detests sin. He cannot stand its sight. However, as Philip Hughes puts it, the gospel transforms remembrance from a remembrance of guilt into a remembrance of grace. Isn't that a tremendous blessing? We still sin. However, whenever we look back on our sin, we can see the grace of Jesus Christ poured out for us on the cross. In the first uh, three verses, the preacher is talking about how these people have to continually do these sacrifices. There's constantly a reminder. But whenever we're reminded, we see grace. Praise God for that. These uh, first century Jews had what they call the Day of Atonement for these sins. And whenever uh, this happened, they would have to go into the temple. They'd have to bring forth an animal, a bull or a goat. And the blood of this animal would have to be poured out. And their sin would be covered. Keyword, covered, for one year. Now, what's the problem with something being covered? It's still there. It's still there. There's no cleansing involved Aren't you thankful that we don't have to endure this process year in and year out? Because, see, this wasn't just a one-time thing that these people had to do. Every single year, they had to make the trek up to Jerusalem. They had to make this sacrifice. And the next year, they'd have to do it again and again and again and again. Every year for their entire life. Aren't you thankful that Christ's sacrifice, once and for all, is enough? Verse 4 finalizes the preacher's first point that there is a need for a better sacrifice as he concludes by stating that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Think if you were a Jewish Christian at this time. Your entire upbringing and background would tell you to keep on participating in this Day of Atonement. Your entire life would have. We think Hebrews was written somewhere around 60 AD, so just about 30 years after Jesus Christ lived on this earth. So you're doing this Day of Atonement, you're sacrificing this animal, but you believe in Jesus. You believe that he was the Messiah. But you still want to do the Day of Atonement. It's been ingrained in you. Your ancestors have done this for millennia. The preacher of Hebrews is saying that it is unnecessary. And he even goes as far as to warning, as he does in several other parts of this book, that being a Christian and participating in this Day of Atonement tempts the very wrath of Yahweh God. It's a scary place to be at. In fact, there are five reasons why the Day of Atonement is no longer necessary, according to the preacher of Hebrews. First, it is only a copy or a shadow. It's not the real substance. It's a shadow. Second, it is repeated annually. It has to be constantly done. It's never over, as we'll see later on in this passage. Third, it does not perfect the worshiper. You have to keep on doing it. It's never over. Fourth, it does not cleanse the conscience. 
the preacher says that there is a reminder of sin every year. It's constantly on their mind. Fifth, it is an inferior vehicle of atonement. And we'll look into that a little bit more later. The blood of bulls and goats could postpone God's impending judgment. However, it could not offer a complete redemption. Only the Son of God could offer that. Just as it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, it is equally impossible for things like church attendance, VBS involvement, scriptural memory, the amount of money you give every week to the church tithe, the amount of countries you go on on mission trip to proclaim the name of Jesus. None of those things can take away your sin in the eyes of a holy God. Now, don't take that the wrong way. Those things are still important, and they still matter, and we as Christians should still do them. We should still um, be involved in VBS. We should tell people about Jesus. We should go on mission trips to proclaim the Great Commission and the Gospel. It's what Jesus commands us to do. We should do these things. We should memorize Scripture so that we have God's Word hidden in our heart, so that we can give it a fence for the Gospel whenever the time arises. And lastly, we should come to church on a constant basis. Because as the author of 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, we have fellowship. He goes on later to say that without this fellowship, it is impossible to walk in the light. Our salvation is founded in Christ's death on the cross, not in these other entities. The second point that the preacher makes in verses 5 through 9 is the provision of the better sacrifice. And in this section, the preacher brings up a Davidic psalm, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 9, in which the preacher goes to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And as David does in several of his other psalms, he goes and talks about how uh, God desires to have faithful hearts and faithful lives rather than mere sacrificial rituals. Even here in the Old Testament, these shadows were pointing to the coming substance in Jesus Christ. Now, how many times, whenever, whether it's us or someone we know, they dismiss the Old Testament by saying it's a bunch of um, laws, it's a bunch of boring information, um, stuff that we don't need to know about. We know about Jesus. That's all that matters. Well, you're right. Your salvation is founded in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. However, he didn't abolish the Old Testament. He didn't abolish the Old Covenant. He fulfilled it. Praise God for that. And he established the New Covenant. This should give us as Christians reason to pause and reflect in our own lives, to think if we or have we ever lived our lives in such a way and given to God because it's something that we've always done or because it's what our heart genuinely desires to do. According to a study done by USA Today in 2017, between 70 and 75% of youth who grew up in the church leave the church after high school. See, we really haven't come that far in nearly 3,000 years. If you see church attendance as something of a tradition, as something that your family does, and that is an expectation of sorts, we've missed the boat. We've fallen short of what David is talking about, this genuineness of your heart. I've experienced this firsthand at a Christian university. 
you see people who come in from very strong Christian backgrounds, and within 10 to 12 months, church is an afterthought. Now, this happens for all sorts of reasons. However, at the end of the day, there is a serious distortion of the truth of the gospel. Whenever push comes to shove, we would rather do what we want to do, and unless our heart truly delights in the things of the Lord, we will push things like church, mission trips, and worship to the back burner. When we look at the life of Jesus, he came to do the Father's will, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant and established the New Covenant. In the same light, we should live our lives in such a way that whenever people see us, they should see what Jesus lays out in the Great Commission, that we are going out and we are making disciples, not converts, but disciples, so that they can go out and make more disciples. No amount of sacrifice can substitute for obedience. Pointing other people towards Christ with how we live our lives is how we can worship God today. Stephen K. Stanley puts it like this, Sacrifice is never were the ultimate focus of God's will or desire. And only through the incarnation can Jesus accomplish the will of God and do away with sin. As verse 9 puts it, he establishes the new covenant. Aren't you thankful that he fulfilled the old covenant and established the new covenant? It's a blessing, and we take that for granted all too often. The third point that the preacher makes is found in verse 10. And this is talking about the effectiveness of the better sacrifice. And this is kind of the keystone verse of this entire passage. This process of sanctification, being made holy, is unique to the new covenant. Because God willed it, and by the means of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, believers have been made holy. The old covenant worshiper had to be repeatedly made purified through sacrificial ceremony whereas the New Testament saint is set apart completely. Paul hits on this point in Romans 4.25 when he says that he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification, meaning that he died for our sins and resurrected so that we too could be made righteous before the Father. Paul goes on to talk about how sanctification is a lifelong process. It's not overnight. As a people, we like instant gratification, instant results. Sanctification isn't that. It's a lifelong process of being made more like Christ. However, we don't do this by sacrificing animals. We do this by prayer, by fellowship, and by applying Christ's teachings into our daily lives. In the Greek, this construction highlights the permanence of Christ's work and the continuing state of sanctification. This is an example of dualism in the sense that we are already justified before the Father, however, we are not yet like Christ. Sanctification is progressive, and it's something that we all have to work at. However, we are able to be more like Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. According to F.F. F. Bruce, there are three key effects that the preacher ascribes to the sacrifice of Christ. First, people have their conscience cleaned from guilt. Now think about how this is different from what the preacher says at the beginning about the Day of Atonement. See, with that, he said there is a constant reminder of sin every year. 
Well, now, because of the sacrifice of Christ, our conscience is cleaned. Cleaned from guilt. Second, we are fitted to approach God as accepted worshipers. Whenever God looks at us, what does he see? Does he see a filthy sinner? Am I a filthy sinner? Yes, I am. But he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus, and because of that, we are fitted to approach him as an accepted worshiper. And finally, third, we experience the fulfillment of what was promised in earlier days, which is being brought into perfect relation to God. We're perfected. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're perfected. See, with the old uh, Levitical law, if it perfected the worshiper, they wouldn't have to go back. They wouldn't have to go back. There wouldn't be a need to continue having these sacrifices year in and year out. But it didn't perfect the worshiper. The sacrifice of Jesus, though, it does. That's good news. The final section that the preacher has for us is verses 11 through 18. And in this section, he hits on the permanence of the better sacrifice. This section goes to finalize the point that the preacher makes about how God's Christ's sacrifice is superior to that of the blood of bulls and goats, as well as a sacrifice that need not be repeated ever. These verses show the difference between the high priest and the great high priest, who we know is Jesus Christ. Now think about if you're a Jew, like we talked about in the beginning. The priest was your guy. That was as high as it got from an earthly standpoint. That was, you know, kind of your mediator, if you will. You know, he would be the one to sacrifice the animal on your behalf, and it would cover your sin. So this was something that would have been contra everything that these Jews would have been taught their entire lives. So whenever we look back and we see these Jews in the first century rejecting Jesus, and we wonder, how could you have done that? How could you reject the truth right in front of you? What did he do? He fulfilled everything that these priests were doing. Took it away. Said, my sacrifice is enough. Period. No more. These priests, they stand daily at their service offering the same sacrifices over and over and over. And their work is never done. It's never done. Jesus, meanwhile is said to be sitting down at the right hand of the Father, which is a reference to Psalm 110. His work is completed, and it carries with it some huge benefits to believers. In the original Greek translation, the preacher of Hebrews phrases verse 14, the perfect tense. And he does this to indicate something that was done in the past that carries with it present implications. It is completed, whereas a present idea would indicate something that is still happening. It's continually happening. Jesus' work has made perfect or perfected those who are being sanctified. Do you see how beautiful that is? The work of Jesus is completed and is perfect while we as followers of Christ are being perfected. We're not perfect. We still sin as we're going to look at here in a little bit. But if we look back to verse 10, 
we see that by Christ's sacrifice, we have been made holy. This is another perfect tense used by the preacher, and it stands in direct contrast to what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, when he said that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to make perfect those who draw near to worship. It is impossible for the law to make you perfect. It's impossible. It can't be done. As Christians in both the first century and the 21st century, we have been made holy before a holy God, thanks to the sacrifice that Jesus made. And with that said, we are progressively being made more like Christ as we live our lives on this earth. We as followers of Christ are moved from a position of unholy alienation from the Father into a covenantal relationship with Him. Paul talks about this time and time again in his letters, and this most likely would have been something that the recipients of Hebrews would have been familiar with, especially if we operate under the assumption that Hebrews was penned for the people in Rome, because Romans, the letter by Paul, would have been written about 10 years before this. The new covenant worshiper can approach the throne of grace boldly because of the work of the Holy Spirit alive in their life. The preacher quotes Jeremiah 31 in verses 16 and 17, and he does this to show how this new covenant will be engraved in the Christian's heart and mind rather than merely written on tablets of stone. Because of the perfect sacrifice by Christ, the Christian can now do the will of God and be led by the Spirit. We're still not perfect in the sense of our sin, but whenever we follow the Spirit's leading, our intention is perfect. Aren't you thankful that the law is within our hearts as followers of Christ? See, we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, are able to see things that the rest of the world can't see. We're able to see things clearly as Jesus would have seen them, with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're able to be convicted of things that the world is not convicted of. And because of that, we live a life that is radically different from the rest of the world. Verse 18 should be a cause to rejoice among believers in Christ, as we see that there is no longer any offering for sin. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to remove the stain of sin in the eyes of the Father. The only thing that can change that stain is the blood of Jesus Christ. Looking to some regularly repeated sacrificial ritual or legalistic checkbox as the basis for forgiveness, as his recipients and as Christians today so often try to do, amounts to a rejection of the glorious gospel of salvation by the grace of God. Sin is man's greatest problem. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 bear that hard truth out very bluntly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death. Not just a temporal death, but an eternal death. With that said, though, we have a glorious, and like Nathan saying, a living hope. In Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice, once on the cross, that takes away our sin and the sin of the world for all time. We can cross this once great chasm thanks to the cross of Christ. This passage helps us to illustrate how in Christ the shadow has been made into the substance. The temporary has become eternal. The imperfect has become perfect. 
judgment has become mercy and law has become grace. We serve a Savior who is currently in heaven interceding on our behalf. Yes, it says that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but do you think he's just sitting around idly? Read your Bible. No, he's not. He's interceding on our behalf. We forget about that so often. See, we read the gospel accounts and we see that Jesus was ascended into heaven. And then we start reading these letters. We think, well, where's Jesus at? What's he doing? What's he doing? He's interceding on our behalf, on the behalf of Christians, to the Father. If we could hear the prayers of Jesus, what would we do? There'd be nothing that could stop us. Absolutely nothing. But what do we do all too often? We cower down. We shrink down. Whenever what we're called to do is proclaim the Great Commission, proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world that is in desperate need of the truth. As Pastor Philip said, John 14, 6 clearly states there is one way. There's one truth. There's one life, and that's Jesus Christ. You can't make it there on your own. You can't do it. It's impossible. Millions have tried, but it's impossible. The only way is through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. So three quick points of application. First, as followers of Christ, God does not count our sins against us. Praise God for that. Give praises to Jesus Christ for that. There's nothing that we've done to deserve that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We should praise God and praise His plan that through Jesus Christ, our sins are not counted against us. Second, we are being sanctified presently and should be moving towards holiness. This is a call for each and every one of us to look into our lives and evaluate how we're doing in this regard. You're either moving closer to Christ or you're moving away from Christ, period. Two options. You either pick up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow after Christ, or you lay it all down and you live for yourself. How are we doing in that regard? Third, the new covenant is written on our hearts and minds, not on tablets of stone. The gospel should be proclaimed in our lives. We have God's word, this new covenant, written on our hearts and our minds as followers of Christ. There is no excuse to not live a radically different life than those around us. Whatever people see us, they should see the love of Jesus permeating our thoughts, our words, our actions. That's a tough standard. We're going to fall short of that. We're still sinners. But we're being progressively be, being made more like Christ. That's a blessing that we have. So because God willed it, and by the means of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, believers have been made holy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you're so good to us even though we don't deserve it, God. Even whenever we rebelled against you, you could have rebelled against us, God. You could have crushed us for our iniquities, but you didn't do that, God. 
You sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a terrible death on the cross in my place, in the place of everyone here, God. Thank you for that. Thank you for your truth. God, help us to live a life that is radically different from those people around us. Help us to live a life that points other people towards your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.